Translation is a classic problem in computer science. How do you translate a sentence from one human language into another? This seems like a problem that computers are well-suited to solve. Languages follow well-defined rules, and we have lots of sample data to train our machine learning models. And yet, the problem has not been solved, largely because languages don't always follow rules. We have idioms, we have subtle contextual clues that make it hard to provide a computer with hard and fast rules for translation. Unbabble is a company whose solution to translation puts a human in the loop to correct the error-prone translations that computers often make. In this episode, Vasco Pedro joins the show to explain Unbabble's machine learning-driven approach to translation, its technology stack, and the business applications for translation, and also so a lot of interesting nuggets about how human language works and why it makes a lot of sense to put a human in the loop, and also how do you allocate tasks to those humans in the loop. You don't want to just allocate random language tasks to random humans. You actually want to give them tasks that they have a domain expertise in, aside from just having a language expertise. So I really enjoyed this episode about translation with Vasco Pitt. Vasco Pedro is the CEO of Unbabble. Vasco, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. The problem of translating between human languages is something that computer scientists have worked on for a long time. What is it about translation that makes it a problem that is both well-formed for computers to work on, but also very challenging to solve? That's a great question. So uh, translation, and machine translation in particular, uh, was one of the original problems that kind of created the field of AI, right? So people in the beginning thought, hey, you know, let's uh, think of language as a, a cipher, uh, and so use the same methods that we use to decipher messages. Uh, like, uh, you know, at the time, there was a lot of spy codes and a lot of work on that. Uh, and I'm sure in like five years, we'll have something that can translate perfectly, right? And this was in the 60s. Uh, and language has always been elusive, Right? Because it's always been like five to ten years away, uh, we're almost there. And we think, I think that the, the main reason is because language is probably the most obvious expression of our intelligence. You know, it's, uh, it's something that um, uh, it, it really uses a lot of our brain capacity. Uh, it has, you know, it, it enables to express everything from classification to abstraction to reasoning. Uh, it can be meta, you know, you have uh, nuance, you have... Uh, um, uh, comedy and, uh, and, and a lot of other aspects. And so it just makes it really hard to decode in a way that you can then do an efficient machine translation. And so there's been a lot of work since then. I mean, in, in the 90s, there, were, uh, there was a breakthrough with statistical models. Recently, in the last three years, there was another breakthrough with neural models. And every time we think, oh, no, now, we're, now we get it, right? But we're, we're so adapt as humans of um, detecting flaws in language because we interact with it so much that uh, it's very easy for machine translation to fail and very hard to get, you know, all the cultural nuances, references uh, correct. Unbabble is building a multilingual understanding between companies and their customers. Can you give a high-level explanation for how Unbabble works? Sure. So, um, 
that's a great description of Embevel, by the way. Uh, it's uh, it's on your website. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's. Uh, <laughs> but I, I love the way you said it. It's, it's very. You know, I almost want to get the recording play out. Here's what we do. It's uh, really well well said. Um, so um, the way it works uh, basically is, you know, we try to create a hybrid system. So think about. Uh, humans and, mach- and machines creating a new type of, 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 of machine, right? So humans and technology create this hybrid machine. And we're fundamentally, in a way, creating the, the, the operating system for this machine focused on language. Uh, and so we fundamentally believe that uh, it, it really takes a combination of technology and humans to produce the quality, speed, and scale that we're looking for. Uh, the system at its base, the way it works is text comes in. We first do machine translation. We then use quality estimation, which is another neural uh, model uh, that basically determines whether the output of the machine translation is good enough or if you need humans. Then we select uh, from our crowd of 45,000 translators automatically who are the right translators to be uh, uh, translating that content and, revi- and, and revising it. Uh, they do that in sequence. So the, you know, you'd have one person checking the output of the machine translation and then a second person checking the output of the first person. Uh, and then at the end, it gets sent back to the to the to the customer. You know, it gets returned depending if you use the API or if you use a, an integration. And the system learns from this output. Uh, so there's a continuous uh, uh, learning process. Now the human in the loop, I can totally understand. You try to run first. You run the machine translation, and then you have the human in the loop check it, and then. Why do you have a second human in the loop? Check it after that. Well, I mean, the definition of human error, uh, you know, human error is is something that is very abundant on any human process. And uh, humans correcting text typically uh, is, you know, like right now, that's kind of the state of the art of quality is you give it to a human and he does it. But it still produces uh, a lot of errors. And so this is basically for redundancy, right, for having another another pair of eyes to catch any mistakes you might have might have done. So this is a supply and demand equation. How do you make sure that you have enough work for all of these translators to be translating, um, and also having enough humans that such that if you get a spike in load, uh, you can you can accommodate that spike in load. How do you manage that supply and demand equation between the translators and the load of work? So it, it's it's a great question. I think it's the it's one of the biggest issues, right? I mean, we're still in a phase where, fortunately, we have a lot of supply, um, and then we're really working on demand, uh, and that's definitely one of the biggest factors that drives community engagement. Uh, one of the things that we do is we keep uh, a fine balance between, you know, the language pair. So we typically talk about language pairs, meaning you know, it's typically people translate from the Portuguese to English or English to Portuguese. Uh, or you know English to another language, rather than it's not so much about language language pairs, but um, we keep each language pair opened for new translators only if we have enough volume that requires more people, right? So whenever there's you know increasing volume, we kind of open the language pair again, uh, and then as we have enough people, we kind of okay now we're not taking more people. Initially, we actually let everybody in, and that created some frustration in the community because then the amount that created a, scar- a scarcity of, of tasks. And in the end, that creates, uh, you know, um, unsatisfaction. Uh, and so we found that it's really about high curated uh, individuals that then have enough uh, tasks that they, they think their time is valuable being spent in Babel. I find this language pairs 
question interesting. Why why do you model things as you know like translation from Spanish to English or Italian to French? Is it too hard to make like a universal substrate that all of the languages would translate to, and then you can translate from there to any language? Uh, yeah, well, basically, there's a question of cost. So, you know, if we were, let's say, let's say we use English as an intermediate language, right? And you translate everything to English and then English to something. Uh, the problem is um, not only you'd be paying twice as much because the biggest, by far the biggest cost of translation right now is the human component. Uh, but also, uh, the, there's always some loss of quality, right? Between, so you'd have some loss of, of context or quality when you go to English. And then when you go from English to something else, uh, you know, you would probably result in slightly lower quality than if you went straight from, you know, Portuguese to French, for example. Um, also sometimes it's, uh, it's easier to find in certain language pairs, just easier to find people that know directly that language pair, you know, like, uh, Portuguese and Spanish. Um, and, and so, and so if there's enough people for the direct language pair, then you don't really need to go through another language pair. Sometimes we do need to do that. So sometimes we'll go through English if, you know, a customer really needs that language pair that we don't, so we don't offer all language pairs. We offer right now, um, about 60 something language pairs. Um, but obviously there's, you know, much more. Uh, and so sometimes that, that is required. Let's get into talking about the technology stack and eventually the machine learning pipeline. Can you just describe some of the technologies that Unbabbled uses and maybe how um, a request for translation makes its way through that stack? Uh, sure, yeah. So the majority of our backend uh, of our databases are in Mongo, MongoDB. So I don't know if you want me to go at that deep level or if you want me to keep it a little bit lighter. Sure, no, please, okay. please. Yeah, so majority of our... Of, of our databases are in MongoDB. Um, we use Python uh, um, throughout in Babel. Pretty much everything is built on Python. Uh, we have, uh, you know, obviously in the front end, we use, um, you know, the usual stuff. Um, we have uh, apps on iPhone and Android. And uh, and so we used, we try to do everything using sockets uh, because so things are synchronous, makes it easier. Um, and then, um, uh, for machine learning, so for deep learning, we're using, uh, I think we're using Torch right now. I think we tried TensorFlow and Theano, but I think we're using Torch right now for most of the stuff that we do. Um, uh, and uh, what else? Uh, we're using AWS, so all of our machines run on AWS pretty much, except for the deep learning stuff that we actually have a server in-house to train the models. Um, and that was actually an interesting situation we are right now where the stock machines that you get at AWS for deep learning they have max four gigs of RAM, uh, but a lot of the models that we train are bigger than that. So we actually needed to get like a big machine that would have like uh, each graphic graphic card has 12 gigs of RAM. But I think next year we're going to start seeing suitable machines in in uh, in the cloud for you know a value that would make sense again to use cloud machines. Right now it's actually it's a much better deal to you buy your own, uh, you know. Uh, and train your models there. Um, so a translation, the way it works is, so typically most of our customers, they, they send text through some integration. Uh, our, let's say our, our um, 
our most known integration right now so we're into, is, is on the area of customer service. So the use case that we're exploring a lot is how do we enable within a company, as, as you put it, right, within a company, the, the service part becoming multilingual. So if you have an agent that speaks English, you can just add our app and basically that agent can support customers in any language, which basically means we're decoupling language from customer service. And this means that you can you know, hire people independently of language and you can hire people that are really good customer service uh, agents, not just because they speak a language, but they actually know your product and they're the right person. It means you can also expand within, you know, your own, you know, your team without having to create teams in other countries to support those countries. And so typically what would happen is an agent would reply to a customer ticket in English and that translation through our Zendesk integration, for example, or our Salesforce integration would then be sent to in Babel. Um, and so uh, the back end of, uh, so we have an app on each of those um, applications. The, the, the app basically has a back end that communicates with our API, uh, sends the translation through the API. The API then puts it uh, in the queue. First, the, it will do machine translation. So it uses uh, our machine translation stack is built, the one in production right now is built on top of uh, Moses. So, um, and uh, we're working now on Neural MT, which should be launched sometime this year. Um, and then uh, the after that, the quality estimation is again a neural model that has been trained. So it makes an assertion of whether that, that, uh, that translation has enough quality. If not, it will then be put on a queue for translators. Again, there's a lot of technology there that basically tries to define it. There's a queue system that would say, okay, which translators do I send this to? Uh, and then after that, uh, a translator will pick it up and will can do this on, on his desktop, browser, uh, iPhone, Android. And he will actually uh, be experiencing another part of our technology, which is what we call smart check technology, which is the goal is to help the translators while they're translating. So it gives a lot of hints, suggestions, identifies errors, things like that. Um, it's like a... It's, you know, it's like world word spell checker on steroids. You know, it will tell you things like, oh, you know, you're using formal tone, but the customer actually wants informal tone and oh, there's a grammar error here and so on. Um, and then after that, after it's done with, with people, then it gets sent back through the API, back to the integration, back to, to, to Zen, in the case of Zendesk, for example, and gets posted as a reply in the language that the, the original user wants. So the experience for the user is completely seamless, right? I mean, what happens is, in a way, we're making translation disappear. Right? The agent just writes in English, the user just gets it in whatever language they, they get it. And as far as they know, the other person speaks their language. You mentioned this queuing process. When you have a request for a translation to be processed by a translator, you have some way of deciding which translator that request would go to. Now, if a request is getting translated from English to Spanish, um, why would I need? What would be the different conditions for sending that request to different translator? Like, you know, if you have this, you know, 30, 30 different translators that could translate it from English to Spanish, why does it matter which one you send the request to? Well, what we what we see is this huge difference between, uh, you know, sending you something that you are actually an expert on versus something that you don't care, right? I mean, if I, you know, I, I don't know if you're an expert in fishing, but if I send you, assuming you are, you know, if I send an article about, you know, how you fish in a particular situation, uh, you do a much better job than someone that isn't versus if I send you something in a topic you don't care. So that actually sending the right 
task to the right person really increases speed, accuracy, quality, you know, reduces costs, uh, has a lot of benefits. Um, and also, more importantly, it makes you happier. I mean, it's really crappy to be translating something that you don't like, but reading something that is engaging and that you care about, it's, it's actually rewarding, you know, so, so it means you're also happier. Um, and that's, that's a yeah. fascinating observation because we're in this time where more and more work is becoming sort of like out, like mechanically outsourced, like where, whether we're talking about like Turk, mechanical Turk type of tasks, but you're creating an experience that is actually a little more pleasurable for the uh, outsourced knowledge worker, because what you're saying is that it's better if the translator knows a little about, bit about the domain, like if they're a fishing expert, then you should send them a translation blob about fishing, because then they'll enjoy translating. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. I mean, I think it's it's uh, the more, the happier our translators are, the, you know, the better work they'll do, the, the more rewarding it is. Uh, you know, overall, it's a, it's a win-win situation. Um, and so for us, it also means our customers are happier, you know, th- there's a virtual cycle there. And, and then the, the idea, and we're still kind of early on this, but you actually have a lot of data that you can use to identify that. Not only, you know, the rating of quality of tasks, but things like, you know, which kind of task do they actually, uh, you know, if you offer them, do they take it, right? Because people can skip tasks if they don't want it. And so you can actually start creating a profile of, oh, here's what this person likes. And then you could even take it further and do, you know, social network analysis and understand their interests and say, okay, well, this person did a master's degree in, in mechanical engineering. He probably knows about this stuff versus, you know, wine. Uh, or, you know, so there's a lot of information that can actually help uh, create a profile uh, that then makes it much more efficient to give you something you really enjoy. Now, as I understand the machine learning uh, pipeline starts maybe when the uh, translation finishes. So, for example, if a request to translate something comes in, it gets translated, it gets responded to, then the uh, both the input and the output can be put into the, um, the, the uh, uh, supervised machine learning system. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, uh, it is. I mean, machine learning. There is the learning part, and there's the, the 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 application of the machine learning, right? And so the the application of the machine learning happens from the beginning, right? So when you're doing machine translation, you're actually using machine learning. You're using a trained model, right? But the training part uh, for with new data, we're actually doing it uh, not instantaneously. Uh, but more on a, you know, every few days. So every few days you lump the data and you retrain the engine. Why do you batch it? Well, because there's not a lot of efficient models right now that, that enable you to do online learning for machine learning. Um, so there's a model out of the out of Stanford, the Lilt guys, uh, that, you know, they call interactive MT. But also because we didn't see a lot of benefit. Uh, so we also have other stuff in there, like translation memories and things like that. So... Uh, that translation memories, for example, capture the kind of the very repetitive thing. So where it would help is, okay, I've used the sentence, I translate it, and then I get another sentence exactly like it, right? So I already know. That gets covered by simple technologies or simpler technologies like machine, like translation memories. Uh, the, the machine learning component is really, uh, the really big benefits you have is you have a, you know, a, a, a statistically significant chunk of new data, and that's going to change the engine. 
I did a show a while ago about something called the pancake stack, which is, I mean, we got kind of off topic in that episode, but that was just show it was supposed to ostensibly be about online machine learning and getting these streaming workflows going, which turns out to be incredibly complicated. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Pipeline IO, but if you, I don't know if you're interested in it. Right, okay. So yeah, that's that was the the guy who I interviewed was talking to Chris Fregley. Um what can you talk more about that? What is the, what are the challenges of getting the online machine learning process going and for listeners who don't know what that means? It's like you have uh, new data and you're constantly feeding that data into the model and updating the model. Yeah, so it's the updating the model part that is hard, right? Because you need to uh, train. So for example, to give you a sense, every um, neural um, model that we have right now takes, I would say, a week to train, right? A week to two weeks. Uh, so the, the hard part is when you, in statistical models, you're basically calculating weight distributions, right? And so when you add new data, you need to figure out how that impacts the whole model. And, and that typically is done with retraining the model. But if you retrain from scratch, it's going to take you a few days, so, uh, so you need to figure out a way that you can kind of add the new data and estimate the new weights in a really, really efficient way. Uh, and then, you know, so what some people do is they add, they have kind of a, you know, kind of a speedy way of doing this. But then a few days uh, later, they will retrain the whole model. Help me understand why people choose different machine learning frameworks. And maybe this is like, sounds like a naive question. You're using Torch. TensorFlow has all the popularity and attention right now. Uh, you mentioned Theano. How do these different machine learning frameworks differ? And does it even matter today which one you choose? Yeah, not really. I mean, for us, I think initially was, um, you know, a lot of times the way this happens is the person that starts working with is very comfortable with one of them. And so it just speeds up the, the process of doing it. Um, sometimes some of them actually support, like, let's say, new features on this graphic cards that just make it a little bit faster, or they have a Python SDK that makes it really easy. You know, it's, it's usually things like that. I think in the end, you know, the basic kind of training a model, <clears throat> it doesn't doesn't make a lot of difference. I think uh, it's more of the features, ease of use, and a lot of that is, you know, it's a little like the, and I think this is becoming more and more, it's a little bit like the, you know, VI versus Emacs discussion of which one is better. You know? I believe that. Although, so, like, I think about the the React JS um, front end framework from Facebook, and this framework caught fire in part because it did some stuff right fundamentally from the beginning, but also I think because people felt like, oh, Facebook is putting a lot of yeah, energy into definitely. this. I think Google is is uh, is is doing the same with TensorFlow, right? I mean, there's a lot of energy there, and so people are kind of picking it up right so i wouldn't be surprised i mean we've been experimenting and doing some stuff with all of them um and and you know i wouldn't be surprised if you know six months to a year and i think there's a little bit of a war going on of like a race of trying to become the dominant uh you know machine uh, deep learning uh framework and there's a lot of benefit for that right because then you have people that really know your framework and so you can recruit directly from there and you know it's, increase your popularity and it's a little bit like you know, Google ended up owning the mobile world with the Android OS, right? And uh, and if they can also own the deep learning world with their framework, it's you know it just increases their mind share, which is great for them. <laughs> and um, you know, one thing I've heard recently, like I so I did a show with um, this robotics company that uses Google's 
managed machine learning, um, which I think is like TensorFlow. It's basically TensorFlow, but it's like managed TensorFlow, and I think it's just in beta right now. But uh, it sounded like one of the big assets of the managed machine learning is that it really scales up and down as you need it to. And I guess the dynamic scaling is a significant challenge, or maybe you can tell me whether that's correct, or you can it tell is. me what are the assets yeah. of... Okay. That definitely yeah. it is. So the what we're seeing is the reason why we got... Uh, you know, Right now we're running with Titan X uh, uh, graphic cards in-house, in and we got a new 1080. So the ten, Titan X has 12 gigs of RAM, the 1080 has 8. Uh, and the reason why we needed that is because it's very hard to break the models into smaller chunks uh, and train them. I mean, that's very complicated. It's much easier to actually have the whole model in one graphic card. Um, and I've, I've been hearing about, we haven't tried it yet, uh, but I've been hearing about like the scalable uh, managed machine learning uh, data. And if indeed what they do is great, you want to speed up the training of your model, just add more machines, then that's fantastic, right? Uh, but we, at the time, we looked at that and we said, okay, it's, we're going to spend years, you know, maybe a year just trying to get this right. It's not worth it. Let's just spend the money on a bigger graphic cards and it fits in 12 gigs, so it's fine. If Google gets that business right, that seems like a massive business. That seems like a massive intro into, or, well, I mean, they're obviously moving into the cloud more convincingly. Uh, and I think I've, you know, I've heard similar praise of the managed Kubernetes clustering. Um, it seems like they're, yeah. Have you taken seriously the idea of moving some of your infrastructure to GCE? Uh, we haven't, and I think it's mostly because, so we're using the Google infrastructure for other services, uh, language identification, we use in some languages, uh, we use their machine translation in some languages, uh, we don't have coverage for all languages, uh, and so we definitely, and, and I think they do a fantastic job, but initially, you know, their approach initially to, to the cloud was too managed, you know, it was... Uh, it was a little bit like, oh, give me the program, I'll just run it, you don't have to worry about anything, which is great in certain cases, but, you know, we started... They were too early. Yeah, we started with Heroku, uh, which was great initially, we don't, you know, you don't have to worry about infrastructure, but then at some point we really needed to be a little more bare metal, or at least, you know, have more control over the individual infrastructure, and so we moved to AWS. Uh, and to be honest, I haven't really kept up on their infrastructure part on what's going on at Google. Uh, I, once in a while I hear stuff and it looks really good. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we'd have to, we have to see it. Uh, there's also a little bit of once, you know, once you have a method that kind of works for you, it's changing is always, it takes a little bit more, it's always harder. Right. And I think, our, Oh, of course. Right. And, and our team now is super happy with the machine here. Right. They're like, Oh, this is great. They were actually talking about, uh, trying, there's also IBM also has a cloud that they're launching for the same purpose. And so we're always trying new things, but it's, it's kind of, you know, you have something that it's, it's easy, you don't want to waste more time figuring out how to change, this is good for now, and you just keep, keep doing it, right? You just keep going because it speeds up your development process. Mm -hmm. I think if they do figure that out, you know, like really manage scalable machine uh, machine learning cloud, I think that's that's, that's a huge business. There's a lot of companies, well, there's a few companies at least developing hardware specifically for machine learning, new processors, new, you know. I think we're, we're seeing, a, you know, a lot of changes. I would, you know, in the next couple of years, I think we're going to see um, a, a lot of very exciting new things out there because right now, especially in this last year, when it comes to hardware and you know and uh, and um, infrastructure for uh, deep learning, it's still very much in the early days. Yeah, I uh, certainly like t the TCU comes to mind. The ter what is it? Tensor TPU Tensor Processing right, Unit. Exactly. 
that'll be a thing. But uh, and I also talk, I think I talked to somebody at Intel or, or so, who did I talk to? Some chip company um, who was talking about like how they're working on special chips oh, yeah. for machine learning. And and I was like, well, I wonder if, because I think Intel is trying to get into the cloud business. So I wonder if that could be a business like the, just like, here's some chips on a cloud and there are special Intel chips. And if you want to use them, you've got to go to the Intel cloud. Could be. I mean, I've been, I've been talking also with some startups. Uh, Cerebra is one of the startups that, you know, they're developing this really exciting um, uh, hardware for for machine learning. Which you know the promise is tremendous. You know they're still early, they're still testing in beta, but it's really like a mag- order of magnitude faster than what we're seeing right now. Now, so we were talking about the GCE uh, services and how they're kind of moving up market and down market at the same time in terms of like the abstraction level. So, so the down market would be like the Kubernetes stuff, but the up market is how they are you know, they've got these services like you can just give it an image and it'll classify the image as an API request or you give it some a blob of text and it'll translate the text as an API request. So the translation, the Google, I imagine Google Translate is pretty good, but they don't have the robust pipeline of the human editing. So do you, and I think you said you mentioned you don't have, since you don't have every language yet, sometimes you you might kick it to Google Translate. Can you use Google Translate basically to bootstrap some of your language models because you can instead of just using the the uh, unbabel model for the for the for, for the initial translation you could just kick it to google translate and then send it to the human in the loop and then use the result to update your personal model well i mean technically sure but we don't uh so i mean google is very and and with uh and correctly so uh, you know, owns their models, and you, you can't use the output of their model to train another model because you're creating competition. Uh, and so we don't. Do oh, that's th- illegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't do that. I mean, you know, not legally, at least. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so we don't, we don't do it. Uh, we train our models based on publicly available data, uh, and then once we launch them, then we use, and then we start increasing them with our own data. I see. Okay. And, you know, I've got some like kind of broader questions about translation because it's such an interesting topic thank you yeah yeah yeah. so how does translating because i mean most of the shows that i've done about anything relating to translation is like how do you translate a pro one programming language to another language how does translating between human languages compare to translating between programming languages well um it's incredibly more complex, right? Because programming languages have a defined grammar, and there's really no exceptions. Uh, and human languages are incredibly rich with exceptions, uh, and inventiveness, and new words, and you know, and and so there's no there's no algorithmic way of doing it. You, you that's why you need probabilistic methods, um, uh, and you need machine learning, and so on. Uh, and in fact, we don't even really understand. What is the process that's going uh, going on inside someone's head when they're translating, right? And and that's one of the issues. Is that the way that I think about it is right now we're still in this pre-industrial revolution stage in translation where it's really a craft and you have a lot of people and you're saying, hey, translate this and you you give a translation to someone. But if you think about it, the the way that people created a shoe factory or you know a Ford automation factory, it wasn't by you know, asking one person, okay, you build this car and then you build that car and then you build the other one, right? You, you, you reverse engineer the process of building a car and then you create an assembly line. 
And we're trying to, in a way, do that to translation. We're trying to reverse engineer what's going on inside someone's brain to understand what's the process of translation so that we understand which parts are really suitable for AI and which parts are really not suitable for AI and they really require humans. Because fundamentally, humans weren't really built to remember obscure meanings of particular pieces of a fishing rod um, in three languages, right? They were, they're, really, they're really good at understanding the nuance of communication, the appropriateness within the culture, uh, you know, like the creativity component and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and machines are really good at uh, computation, right? And so uh, that's actually one of the fundamental issues with translation is that it's, it's not just a classification task like uh, speech recognition or, or image recognition, it's, there's really, there's some classification task of understanding, you know, what are the words initially, but then there's abstraction layers, there's logic, there's, you know, the, the part of the creative process that we don't really understand how it happens within a human, right? And so that's kind of the path that we're taking. Um, and so that, that makes it very different than, than, uh, to give you a sense, for example, I can take a sentence, give it to five people, they can all translate it, it can all be correct, and it can be all very different. There's no ground truth to it. And how much of that is due to idioms? Some, right? Some, definitely. But even within canonical proper... But I guess, I guess everything, everything about language is somewhat idiomatic, even like just more subtle aspects of it. Definitely. I mean, that's actually one of the reasons why language is so important, is because it is the easiest way to identify who belongs to your tribe, right? And your tribe is defined by the idioms that it has. So, you know, if someone speaks English natively, like, oh, okay, it's probably from the U.S., you know, and if they speak the same way that you do, then, you know, then, oh, okay, they're, they're, they're in my profession or they're in my... And then if they have that particular idiom from your neighborhood, it's even closer, right? So the closer their language matches yours, the more uh, they belong to your tribe. Uh, and so it's important to have those idioms as a way of distinguishing yourself and, and, and uh, you know, and, and of identifying yourself with people that are similar. Um, it, it's an interesting phenomenon with language, right? I mean, you take 50 people, you put it in the middle of the forest, and 50 years later, they have a new language. So there's some, something inherently, you know, innate to humans of creating new languages. Teenagers do the same, right? They're, they, they basically uh, start differentiating themselves from adults by creating their own language, their own words. Yeah, and uh, I should have defined the word idiom in case a listener doesn't know what it is. Idiom is kind of like a slang sort of thing that's like local to your language. Like if you say, like in English, for example, you've said, oh, that's off the wall. Like that means that's crazy. Um, and But that's off the wall would not necessarily translate well from English to, I don't know, Italian. Um, so how does... You, you spend a lot of time in, in academia. You got your PhD. How does the industry approach to translation differ from the academic approach, or is there indistinguishable? Uh, they're, very, they're very different, I think. You know, I mm. mean, when you, when you get to Google, for example, they're a little bit indistinguishable because the people in Google doing machine translation, they're not really thinking about it commercially. I mean, there are other people that would be thinking about it commercially within Google, but not the people actually building the system. So they're really thinking about it almost as an academia uh, person of saying, here's a problem, I want to solve it, right? Um, but in most cases, if you look at sort of smaller uh, translation companies, machine translation companies in particular, it's, um, you know, people will take a lot of shortcuts, a lot of engineering. There's a lot of misuse in general of the word AI and what it means and <laughs> machine learning. And, you know, everybody has big data and <laughs> big data now is out of use. But, you know, there's a little bit of a hype going on where everybody has to have everything and so sometimes I feel that in the translation world it's it's like 
everybody's kind of selling you a Ferrari, you know, and if you're lucky, you'll get a BMW, but then most times you'll get like a Fiat, you know, it's, everybody has all the features, they do everything, but it's kind of hard to tell because in the end, since there's so much is dependent on a human, um, humans are really good at dealing with noise so they can overcome the lack of certain technologies, for example. Do you have any perspective or can you talk about how Unbabble's approach diverges from the Google Translate approach, I guess, to model building? Obviously, the yeah. human in the loop is fundamentally different. But. Definitely. That, that part is fundamentally different. But even at the, even at the level of machine translation, uh, our philosophy is very different. Um, so Google is fundamentally trying to solve the overall machine translation problem, which is amazing, and they've been doing an amazing job. Um, we are really focused on domain-specific machine translation. So well, we're, we do have a, a basic general model, uh, but what we do is we take, you know, okay, so now we're focused on customer service, right? And so our model is really good at customer service because you understand, you know, it's really trained with the data that's coming from our customers that that are uh, in the customer service world. Uh, and so in that, in a way, what we're doing is we're creating hundreds of machine translation engines, each of them adapted in a particular domain. Um, and, and, and in those domains, in the ones that we're focused on, you know, we're better than Google Translate. But it's a very different approach. What I hear you saying is, is, again, the importance of the specific domain that is used to train the language of model, uh, the, the language model for translation. Um, that's, that's so fascinating that it really matters if you're doing customer service translation, you are going to bias your translation model to a way of translating that is more generous and welcoming and um, the things that you would expect from a customer service representative. Yeah, definitely. I mean, domain is, is everything, right? I mean, it's, uh, um, and it's also, if you think about it, it's a way of breaking down the problem, right? I mean, the problem is intractable uh, right now. I mean, I don't think we're close to solving machine translation. I think we're still very far away. I think there's fundamental insights that haven't happened yet. I think we'll eventually we'll get there, you know, um, but I, I don't think it's going to be next year or the year after, you know, I don't think it's going to be the next five years. Um, and and so a solution for that is breaking down the problem to smaller parts. And we say, okay, instead of focusing on the whole search space, we're going to say we're going to start by this domain, and that immediately reduces ambiguity significantly. You can have a much bigger coverage. There's less variability. You know, all of those helps. So, I mean, that... The idea that machine translation with domain adaptation is better than general machine translation, that's been around for a long time. It's kind of a well-known fact, right? Uh, it's a more reasonable approach if you don't have billions of dollars and infinite resources. I was thinking about how useful translation is in a business context and where you can use translation to save costs or create new profit centers. And I was thinking about this, how companies use Unbabble to translate support tickets. And I can see this as being useful either to translate tickets into a language where someone in a lower income country can read. Like if you have an English support ticket, but you want to translate it to some language of a lower income country, then you can lower the cost of servicing that support ticket. Or you could have the language translated from um, somewhere that is not English to English. And then you could have very sophisticated support tickets that need to be read by English speaking engineers rather than hiring the rare engineer that actually speaks that language. Um, 
And I think there's just so many opportunities for how translation can be used to lower the cost of doing business. Can you elaborate on that? What are some of the great opportunities for companies to use translation to um, create profit centers or um, reduce costs? There is a there's a it's a there's a lot of different use cases, right? I mean, language is so ubiquitous into a company. I mean, think about what would the world GDP be if there were no language barriers? Um, it's 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 phenomenal. So, for example, yesterday uh, we were uh, we were at a TechFugees meeting, which is a project for uh, helping refugees. And systematically, the first thing they said, he, the biggest issue they had in trying to you know, start a new life in a country is language. They don't understand the language. They can't interact. It's it's, it's a huge problem. For companies, that actually comes out into in, in a lot of use cases. So customer service is definitely one of them. You know, 75% of the world doesn't speak English. Uh, I know sometimes it's, you know, it's, it seems ridiculous, but it's true. And, and especially the first, the next three to four billion people that are coming online won't speak English. They're from developing countries. Um, and, and just because they don't speak English, they, sh- they shouldn't, you know, they still deserve good customer service, right? The sh- the, right now, if you send a ticket in Portuguese to most companies, they will just reply with English. You know, they just don't care. Or they will reply with, uh, you know, sorry, we don't do Portuguese. Most of them or not reply at all. And so it means you're effectively cut off from access to products that a lot of times are worldwide or information or services or um, you know, which in a global society is, is really hard, but also so that, and so you can optimize a lot. The other is that for a company hiring people in different countries and maintaining teams in multiple, you know, uh, time zones adds a lot of complexity. Then there's a lot of turnover in customer service. Finding continuously people that speak German is hard. Um, and so all of the, or, and then if you want to do 24 seven customer support in a language, you need four people. Um, uh, that speak that language and then people take vacations and there's weekends and so this means that anybody can respond to those tickets which which is a big difference we also uh, recently integrated with uh, Facebook Messenger and we did chat which has been really fascinating to see the use cases on that but then if you move to um, to profit centers and, and value creation centers you can think of a number of things so you run run, run your marketing campaigns uh, in multiple languages uh, you already created the content in English you know, why not use that uh, globally? Or you want to run your ad campaigns. Uh, how do you do that? Right? You create typically right now uh, ad uh, keywords in English are much more expensive than in other languages. You could just you know run your campaigns in multiple languages and, and improve uh, the value that you get for them significantly. Or you could do obviously you know website or internal co- company communication. Or you can do uh, if you're producing videos. Uh, right now, there's a ton of videos online. Nobody t- turns the volume on, right? I mean, you see it on your Facebook, and they're always volume off. If you don't have subtitles, basically people don't see them. And if you need subtitles in multiple languages, if you're going to attack other markets, and even more, if you don't right now, what's going on in, in YouTube, if you search for a video of some musician, right? And then you search for the same video, and you just add some language, like Chinese, you'll find another video that has subtitles in Chinese, which means that if you don't have subtitles, you know, in a bunch of languages in your videos, somebody will take your video, add subtitles, and they're going to get all the clicks of people that don't speak English, you know. So uh, you're actually losing a lot of potential and um, and for content that you already spent creating. Um, so there's, there's a lot of use cases inside, inside a company. Microsoft has been working on speech translation for a long time. 
they recently came out with some what they called big breakthroughs. I haven't had time to look at this literature, but they said this were big breakthroughs. I know they're also working on putting translation into Skype yeah. and other products to like have on-the-fly audio translation, which is, of course, the epic future that we are all thinking about. Have you have you looked at what Microsoft has been doing recently, or have you had gotten a chance to mess around with the Skype translation product? Do you have any perspective on how familiar. the user experience is? Oh, yes, very much, because they're our customers, uh, and we collaborate with them on ah. uh, on on it. So I can't really discuss uh, very much what we're doing with them, but we're okay. very aware of what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so those breakthroughs that they're talking about are, are legit? Yeah, there. I mean, there's been an incredible uh, advance in speech recognition. Right? Deep learning had a huge impact because it's deep learning, right? Yeah, exactly. That was one of the areas. So first was image recognition and speech recognition because fundamentally, speech recognition is a classification problem uh, and uh, of a continuous input, which is perfect for deep learning, right? And so uh, that that had a significant impact. The translation part is still the hard part. What kind of lever is deep learning giving us for these problems that are ultimately classification problems for which we have lots of data for? Because like the classic uh, estimation for this type of growth is exponential growth based on Moore's law. But but to me, it seems like it, we've become decoup- almost decoupled from the the ideas of Moore's law, because this is totally distributed computation. We're not talking about a specific processor. It seems like the growth is directly related to how much data we have and how fast we can pipe that data into uh, our machines. Um, do you have a handle on how fast these kinds of fields are moving? Um, a, a little bit. you know. So I think that we haven't seen it plateau yet. I think we're going to have two or three more years of just pure continuous advance on the stuff that's coming out with deep learning. Um, I think a lot of the work now is on like attention models with the, within, within deep learnings, which is trying to figure out, you know, how do you actually help within, uh, uh, you know, deep learning model, how, how do you, how to make it more efficient, how to understand which parts is using more than others. So making less like a black box. Um, the other, uh, is, is really on the, the amount of abstraction layers inside, right? So, uh, if you think about it, um, a deep learning model right now requires 100 more or a million times more data than a baby needs to get to a a result that is much less uh, efficient, right? So clearly, there's it's not just about the data; it's really a lot about the structures that we're using for uh, for neural nets that aren't really nearly as efficient or as big as 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 a human right and so they don't well have... although for, go ahead for, for, for the ba- for the baby example though a baby is taking in sensory input from five different uh axes yep. and you know a machine you're translate you're if you're doing just text translation that's a single axis of learning that's true that's true but uh, uh even with uh children that that have experiments where they're you know sense deprived like uh deaf and uh, well, deaf is harder, but like blind kids and kids with uh, disabilities, the learning rates are much higher. Right. So I think our our the stru- the structure of our brain is still much much more complex than what we have right now. So I think data will take us a little bit you know further, and it depend really depends on the task. So some tasks, like I said, classification tasks, I think we're we're getting really good at it. I think the part that we haven't quite figured out, for example, so. 
simple things like uh, in translation, how do we use glossaries within neural nets? You know, so you have words that you say, okay, I know that this word, I want it to be translated this way. And you, you know, no one's figured a good way of building that in within training a model. Uh, uh, how do I, uh, um, you know, like it's, it's, it's a lot of one specific things. The other is it's, there's a, there's a point in which more data doesn't help you, right? So uh, right now, there's already a lot of translation data. I mean, more translation data that you should ever need uh, to be able to learn. Um, if you had, I think that's, that's really what's missing, the right structure, abstraction, something that we don't understand what it is yet. But so I don't think that it will take us exponentially to the point where it's solved. I think it will continue to improve, and then it will plateau at some point, unless you know, the insights keep happening. At the same time, there are around the world hundreds of people working on this. And more importantly, which I think is fascinating with deep learning, is that it's actually simpler, right? So it used to be that you know a lot of the stuff you did during a PhD, if you did a, you know work on machine learning, was thinking about features and feature creation. And now with deep learning, a lot of that has been basically you know the the net, the neural net actually creates the features by themselves. The, the, the side effect of this, instead of needing someone that has years of practice and maybe a team to create a model, you can now have a PhD student in a month create a significantly usable model for a real-world problem, which we already had here, right? So, which means that, you know, like there's there's going to be way more people working on these problems, uh, which means that, you know, the likelihood of having insights is bigger and bigger. Uh, yeah. I think in a way, deep learning does bring also a little bit of a democratization of AI, which I think is really important. Right. Okay, okay. Last question. Um, I think you're, what, 32 or so? You're about my age, I think, or 33? I'm 40. Older? Thank you. Yeah. Oh, you're 40. Okay, yeah. wow. Okay, you got some You got some old pictures on your on your uh, material. I, or maybe you just look remarkably young. But I, yeah, do people, you, people do usually you, do tell you, me that I look young, but thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, do you think that in our lifetime we will have the device that we can just put in our ear that will translate anything anybody says to us. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm planning to live forever anyway, so, yeah, by definition, <laughs> we will. <laughs> okay, all right, so 20, 30 years? Yeah, I, you know, like, the the estimation, the, the best people's estimation is that similarity will, have, will happen in 25 years. I think it won't happen before then. I think that's kind of the, the breakthrough that we need to actually have something really translate is at almost at the level of singularity you know like right i think you yeah. need to have experience in the world to really be able to translate to really translate something and understand the cultural nuances and understand what's the best way to say it to this audience and so on um and i think we're talking about you know 20 years to get to that really to that point to you know especially with a device that you know anybody can speak and you understand there's multiple speakers and you can distinguish between background noise and because Speech recognition, it works really well if you have like a close set mic in one person right now. It's really, really amazing. But if you have it in a, you know, a microphone in an open room with five people talking, forget it, right? It's going it, to, it goes crazy. Okay, Vasco, this was a great conversation. Um, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. 